Awesome, we're going to be in the book of 1 Peter this morning. We're starting a new sermon series that will go through Easter. So 12 weeks in 1 Peter. I know you're used to jumping all the way through the Bible, one sermon per book, but uh, we're going to camp in 1 Peter for a while. I can't wait to do that. So it makes my prep a lot easier. So I'm just mailing it in from here on out, you know? No, I'm not. I'm just actually making sure you're paying attention. Oh, let's pray. Ask God to speak to us this morning. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for a chance to open up your word. God, everyone here needs to hear, not from me, but from you. And so would you do that through the power of your spirit? Open our minds and our hearts and our lives to understand your word, to love your word, to believe your word, and to live in light of it. And so God, would you speak through me or in spite of me, but would you speak? Pray in Jesus' name, amen. You ever wondered why, for some people, a moment of adversity becomes the point where everything unravels, but for others, it becomes like the rallying cry and the point of turnaround, like you lost a job, and for some, it just, they lose all semblance of hope and spiral out of control, like things get nuts in a hurry. For others, they maybe lose a job, and then they go on and start a company, and that becomes the, the rock bottom of their, their story of crazy success. I'm not a huge fan of boxing, but what makes boxers really effective is not just their ability to deliver a punch, but their ability to take a punch and keep going, Right? Mike Tyson in the 90s was fighting against Evander Holyfield, and there were all of these experts that came up and said, you know, his style and his approach seems like it might be really problematic for you. And perhaps his most famous quote ever, he says this, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. <laughs> and that's true, isn't it? Like, we, we, we have this idea of how life is going to go. We have this idea of how things are going to go smoothly. And then adversity hits, and some of us tailspin. We, we crumple like a cheap suit. And others bear down. I think this is what made Rocky Balboa in the movie such a compelling figure. Not only was he like a, a, an everyday guy who, who kind of made it from the active, is that, but... but he wasn't the strongest, and he wasn't the fastest. What made him effective is that he was tenacious in getting hit and keep going, and getting back up. He, he never quit. And here's, here's the thing. What's true in the boxing ring, I think, is also true in life. Life will punch you in the face, and when it does, how are you going to respond? What I'm talking about here, I think, is, is what we call resiliency, the ability to bounce back and stick with something, to handle disappointment and keep going. And, and we, we often face physical adversity, like boxers in a ring or like an athlete training for something. When they want to quit and not do that last rep, they push through it. There's, there's mental resiliency, which is like when you get stuck and you don't know the answer, but you keep pressing forward. This would be like Thomas Edison and his famous like light bulb uh, invention, like he, he, he made it through like a thousand failures and filaments before he found the one thing that would work. Or, or maybe this is an emotional resiliency, the, the ability to move forward after something devastating happens, like the death of a loved one, or, or a divorce, or a job loss, or getting dumped. 
And then there's like a a community or a social resiliency. This is the ability of communities to, to band together and rebuild after something like a natural disaster or a community tragedy. Some of you guys are like, okay, Pastor Kyle, I get we're talking about resiliency, but what does that have to do with the Bible? Aren't we going to get to the Bible soon? Of course we are. As elders in our planning retreat this last summer, one of the things as we were praying for you as a church that kept coming up in our minds is the idea that we need to build resilient disciples. That, that in this culture, in this world, it's, it's, it's not easy to just go on autopilot. That the, the, the cultural current, we can't simply just ride it and things are going to go smooth for us. In fact, to, to know Jesus, to obey Jesus, to love Jesus, and to hold the things that Jesus says are good and not good will actually put us against the current sometimes. And so things won't go well for us. And so how do we, in those moments, continue to move forward? How do we become resilient disciples in the face of opposition and adversity? And that's one of the things that 1 Peter helps us with. From the very first verse, as he introduces himself, he writes it to the chosen exiles. So, as we develop resiliency as a church, I think the intro to 1 Peter has a lot for us. Let's read it together, verses 1 to 5. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. That introduction's a mouthful, isn't it? He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now that's a lot, but here's the big idea. In order to thrive as a Christian in this world, you need to know that you are chosen and you need to know that you are in exile. You are chosen and you are in exile. Peter begins, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. This is Peter, the apostle, the the lead disciple that was close to Jesus during his earthly life. He's writing to a group of Christians scattered throughout modern-day Turkey. Um, Most people believe that he was writing from the city of Rome. And the reason they think that is how he he closes his letter in chapter 5, verse 13. He says, She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. And so you're maybe thinking, well, no, he's writing from Babylon. But if you know anything about ancient history, at this particular point, Babylon wasn't a city. And so how in the world could he possibly be writing from Babylon? Well, Babylon as a city didn't exist anymore, but Babylon as a theme, as the archetype of a city that was opposed to God and his rule was alive and well. And the the current version of it in Peter's day was Rome and the Roman Empire. The theme of Babylon and the city opposed to God and his rule and his reign will be explored over and over and over again. But Peter is living in modern day, in his day, Babylon or Rome. And he writes to these Christians and he says to the dispersion, those in exile, uh, 
in, in a whole bunch of places that we're unfamiliar with, but if you can see, that it's kind of modern-day Turkey. He says, you are chosen rejects, elect exiles. These words don't normally go together very often, like cool parents, <laughs> or decaf coffee, or popular losers. And yet here they are mashed together to give us a sense of our identity as Christians. Don't worry, I'm a cool parent. Just ask my kids. <laughs> what we see in 1 Peter is that in order to thrive as a Christian in this world, we need to know that we are chosen by God for a crazy awesome inheritance and that we are in exile. This world is not our home. We will be rejected here. It won't always feel like home and be comfortable. He's the developing resiliency for life today. So, I want you to say this with me. Say, Pastor Kyle, I am chosen. Okay. Say, Pastor Kyle, I am an exile. And some of you guys are so uncomfortable right now. That actually went far better than I thought it would. I am chosen and I am an exile. We're going to look at the fact that we are chosen for a long time because that's what most of these verses is delving into. But I want to look first at what does it mean for us to be an exile? Being an exile means that we are not at our home. We are living in a different land, a strange land. It means that we can expect to be often misunderstood and maligned and even rejected. To understand what exile really is, we actually have to look back at the Old Testament and see what the original exile was and how that shapes and forms how we live as exiles today. See, when the Babylonians, there's Babylon again, under King Nebuchadnezzar came and conquered Jerusalem. They sacked the city. And in conquering the city, they took all of the good things from it and they took all of the people or most of the people from it and forced them to live back in Babylon. This was known as the exile. The reason they did that was to keep rebellions from forming in, in places that had already been conquered. And so the people of God were taken from the city of Jerusalem to the pagan city of Babylon. They didn't choose this. They didn't want this. It was forced upon them. They were used to living in a city that was centered on the worship of God. The whole city was built around the temple of Yahweh. But now they find themselves strangely in a pagan city, and they're forced to ask themselves, how do we live as God's people here in this pagan city? Which is an incredibly apt question for today, isn't it? And God tells them how in Jeremiah chapter 29 through the prophet there, he says, you are to live in the city, but your allegiance is to be to another. Don't set yourself up in opposition to the city, but buy houses and plant gardens and settle down there and seek the peace and the prosperity of the city. Pray for the city because in its peace and prosperity, you will find peace and prosperity. And so the church of Jesus Christ, the, the people of God living in pagan cities aren't always to be oppositional in our approach, but rather to seek the peace and the well-being of the city, seek the, the welfare of the city because when it goes good for everybody, it goes good for us as well. But our ultimate loyalty is not to the king of our city, but rather a different king. And his name is Jesus. Or in their case, it was Yahweh, that they were to live under God's rule and reign, still obeying the law and serving him and showing the, the pagan city a different way to live, a compelling way to live, a way to live in light of the design that God had created for us. And so in many ways, Jeremiah and the instructions of the Old Testament prophet, prophets are incredibly helpful for us as we live as exiles in our cities. Our ultimate allegiance is to another. 
Now, this doesn't make us terrible citizens. In fact, we often become the best citizens. But our loyalty is to another. You see, in the city of God, righteousness reigns. Neighbors are loved as ourselves. Those in power don't use their power to exploit, but rather to serve. And so when Peter calls the Christians that are scattered throughout the Roman Empire exiles, he is setting the framework for what faithfulness looks like in this world by saying, it's a lot how the Jewish people lived and were called to thrive while they were in exile. So here's the point. If your expectation is that everything will go well for you once you become a Christian, that you will never be misunderstood and that everyone will accept you, you're wrong. <laughs> That's not how it's going to go. And often, uh, our, our deep depression sometimes comes by unmet expectations. And we have to ask ourselves, are those expectations valid? Have they been shaped and formed by Scripture or us? See, the Scriptures tell us something very different about the kind of experience that we can expect to have in this world. We are exiles here, says Peter. Paul wrote in 2 Timothy chapter 3 to, to Timothy, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Jesus himself said in John 15, 20, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. And so, if we are to thrive in our modern-day Babylon, if we are to thrive in this world, we need to remember that it isn't our home. Our citizenship is in heaven, and our heart belongs to King Jesus. We're exiles here. But if we only understand that we're exiles, we're going to get pretty discouraged. We're also chosen, picked by God. Look at verse 2 with me. To the chosen exiles, he writes, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. The phrase according to here that begins verse 2 actually is modifying the subject, which is chosen exiles, chosen rejects. We are, to, we are chosen according to three things. Notice the Trinity popping up here. First, the foreknowledge of God the Father. He knew about us and chose us. Second, in the sanctification of the Holy Spirit or the Spirit. And third, for obedience to Jesus and for sprinkling or cleansing, we chose you. And that is a comforting thought, isn't it? He picked you. Imagine yourself out at recess and you're playing kickball again. Some of you guys get a pit in your stomach just thinking about it. And there are two captains, and they begin to choose teams. And the reason some of you have a pit in your stomach at this moment is because you are used to being picked last. You weren't very good at kicking a ball or running very fast or anything like that, and so all of your classmates would be chosen, and then at the end they'd be like, I guess you get them. But imagine, in God's eyes, this reality. He knows everything about you, the good, the bad, the ugly. And when his chance comes for first pick, he says, I want you. You're on my team. Not because you're awesome, but because he is and he makes you lovely. You are foreknown and chosen by God the Father. It's incredible to me how many Christians live their life feeling like they are merely tolerated by God. 
as if he went to all the trouble of sending his son to live perfectly, to bear our sins in our place, to forgive us our sins, to rise in victory so that we might have hope in him. He did all of that so he could tolerate us for the rest of eternity. You may not say you believe that, but you relate to God like that's true. As if you're an afterthought, as if he has to hold his nose to say welcome. God chose you. If you are a Christian, God picked you, and he opened your eyes, and that's why you're lovely. You're chosen. You're not just in exile. You're chosen and foreknown by God the Father. But not just that. No, the Holy Spirit now sanctifies you. You are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God in the sanctification of the Spirit. That means that the Holy Spirit has a role in this as well, to renew you, to empower you, to slowly change you more and more so that you look more and more like Jesus. Christians, unlike the saints of the Old Testament who are given this framework but couldn't actually live up to it, you have a new power living inside of you, the power of the Holy Spirit. And he will see to it that the job gets done. He will empower you for the work of sanctification, which is the continual process of God making you holy and into the image of Jesus. And he does this for obedience to Jesus. He empowers you so that you can obey Jesus. So that the words that Jesus says, you can actually live in and do and find life. Now, Obedience to Jesus, I find sometimes in interacting with Christians who believe in God's grace, yes and amen, I do, but some of you think that obedience is an optional add-on for super-Christians. It's not. It's what you're expected to do. It's what you're called to do. It's what you're empowered by the Holy Spirit of God to do, that you can actually obey God now in Jesus. You won't do it perfectly, but you can actually have the, the primary tenor and character of your life being shaped by the kingdom of God rather than your old way of life. It's one of the reasons why the Spirit has been given to you, so that you can succeed in that for obedience to Jesus. Now, as you obey Jesus, it will be more and more one of the reasons why you feel like an exile. One of the things that we do as a, as a church is we have a preaching team, meaning that uh, we, we, we preach in all of our services in Lincoln Park and Chester Park and Superior Life. Uh, they each have their own pastors, but sometimes we have a, a team of people that, that preach us, and so we study together, and we collaborate, and we try to help each other like, say things in, in a certain way, and, and one of the blessings of that is that sometimes you get feedback on your sermons before you preach them, and Zach Williams had some really helpful feedback for me this week, and he wrote this. I just wanted to say it in his words because I thought it was really insightful. He said, our exile within the culture we exist in will largely be due to our obedience to Christ. There will be minimal abstract exiling that occurs just due to our mental ascent to the gospel. If our life looks the same as the world, we will avoid that exile feeling. Our pain and disappointment with this life due to our status as exile will be from our obedience to Christ, a different way of living, our verbalization of our belief about things like sin, afterlife, and salvation. Exile in this way is specific to the Christian experience not just a general suffering as a symptom of living in a fallen world as a human. I think that's an important distinction to make. End quote. We are to live as chosen exiles. You've been chosen by the Father, empowered by the Holy Spirit for obedience to Jesus and washed in his blood. Now, if you think that's awesome, just wait until we see what we're chosen to 
in verses 3 to 5. But before that, I just want to look at this customary greeting that he says at the end of verse 2. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Grace and peace are often the, the, the typical greeting that we see in almost all of the letters. But what does it mean? It means that may God's grace, his unmerited favor, be multiplied in your life more and more so that you see it not just as a theological reality of forgiveness of sins, but rather an empowering presence of God that fuels your life. May God's grace be multiplied to you. And may God's peace be multiplied in your life, that your life might be characterized by shalom, his perfect rightness and peace, not just the absence of conflict, but a sense of God's nearness, even in the midst of the storm. Okay, so we are chosen exiles. What does that mean? What have we been chosen to, or what have we been chosen for? Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You're starting to see why we only do five verses at a time, right? To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We have been chosen by God's mercy to be born again and given a crazy awesome inheritance. That's my paraphrase. Crazy awesome inheritance. Let's just back it up and look at these phrases. According to his mercy... He has caused us. Notice the the tense of the verbs there, the action. Who is doing the action? It's in the passive voice. It's not us. It means that in the work of salvation, God is doing all the work. He's doing it. He has caused us to be born again by his mercy to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. Now, that's a lot, so let's slow down. God does the work that causes us to be born again. Now, the word born again sometimes makes people a little uncomfortable, but it's actually the language of the Bible. Jesus, as he was interacting with Nicodemus and talking about the kingdom of God and salvation, used this analogy. He's like, it's like being born again. And you can see the interaction in John chapter 3 if you're interested in that. It's such a different way of experiencing life that it's like being born all over again. For those who are Christians who have been born again in the power of the Spirit, you get this. I once was like this, but I'm not like that any longer. I've been born again. This this life that I live now is is different. It's a new kind of life. I used to desire this, but now I ultimately want to desire God. We are born again, it says, to a living hope. Being a Christian means that we are filled not primarily with despair or grit, but hope. Hope. Guys, this truth that we live in hope creates resiliency in us. Helps us understand that the world won't always be this bad. At some point it will get better. Maybe not in this life, but eventually God will make all things new. And what is this hope rooted in? Look, it's the resurrection, and more specifically the resurrection of Jesus. A historical fact that provides the grounds for this hope so there's not just pie-in-the-sky dreaming. See, as a church, we often rightly focus in on the cross of Jesus. It's what provides the grounds for our atonement and our forgiveness before God. It's what reconciles us with him. But what gives us hope is not the cross. It's actually the resurrection. The the certainty and the power of Jesus' resurrection. When he came out of that tomb, he secured with it our hope and what we'll see, our inheritance. 
It becomes the grounds for our second birth. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. Hark the herald angels sing. That'll be my last Christmas carol reference of the year. But, but do you see why it's such good news? Jesus' resurrection provides the ground for our hope. But what is our hope? Verse 4 tells us. A crazy awesome inheritance. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Getting so excited, I need some water here. We are all trust fund kids in Christ. An inheritance is what is often given to children when they die. It is by rights theirs, but it is secured fully and completely by the work of another, usually their parents. But what is our inheritance as Christians? What has Jesus' resurrection secured for us? It's actually his inheritance. Life with God in heaven on a renewed earth. It's his inheritance, this world, and it's described for us in three ways. Imperishable, undefiled, unfading. Imperishable means that it cannot be destroyed. It is secure. Undefiled means it cannot be ruined or messed up or defiled or dirtied. Unfading means it never gets worse. The joy won't fade or become less, but it actually delivers in all of our longings. There's no diminishing returns on this inheritance. You know what I mean by diminishing returns, right? Like when you buy that new boat, and two weeks later it's not new anymore. Or maybe in dating, let me tell you, the first time that I held Liz's hands was like electricity jolting through my body. Now, we held hands singing songs earlier today. I can tell you it wasn't like that. It was sweet, but it wasn't the same, right? Sometimes there's diminishing returns. I love you, babe. I'm going to get to talk about that. You still light me up. And a few of you are puked in your mouth. All right, great. <laughs> do, you see what I, do you see what I'm talking about when I say unfading? It means it doesn't get old. It's new and fresh every morning. That's what our inheritance is like. Like a trust fund kid, we receive an inheritance that was secured by the hard work of another. His name is Jesus. Now, if you, your whole decision-making matrix would be a little bit different. And our inheritance in Christ makes that pale in comparison. That's the great hope that we have. That's the longing that should fuel our grit today. We are chosen for a crazy, awesome inheritance. And not only that, but it, we're told that it is being kept in heaven for us. And we are being guarded by God's power until that day of salvation. Christian, do you know who you are? You are chosen you are in Christ. You are in exile. You're not just tolerated by God, but chosen by the Father to receive a crazy, often awesome inheritance that will never spoil or perish or fade. You are being kept and sanctified by the power of God's Holy Spirit. You have been washed and cleansed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. You have been secured by his resurrection. So now the life that you live is a different kind of life. It's like being born all over again, living a life that is fixed 
on that future day and filled with hope. But in the meantime, you're also in exile. You're not home yet. And it is through many trials and sufferings that you will enter the kingdom of God. The path is fraught with danger and persecution and opposition galore. You will be maligned. It will cost you to follow Jesus, but it will be so worth it. So don't be surprised when you're treated like an exile. Don't be surprised when life is hard. Don't expect to never face opposition or hardship, but suffer well in hope. You are chosen, and you are in exile. Two realities. This morning we began by talking about resiliency, and I think understanding those two realities helps us to endure in hope. And so you can expect that today, if you are in Christ, you are loved by God. He has shown you the full extent of his love in his Son, sent to live for you, die for you, and rise again for you, to secure for you an inheritance that's amazing. And understanding that, you live differently. Expectation two, you can expect to be disappointed in this life. Plan for it. It will happen. It will not go the way that you expect. You will get punched in the face, literally or metaphorically. Plan on some disappointment. And opposition and disappointment does not mean that God doesn't love you or care about you. He has already clearly demonstrated that, hasn't he? And so you can expect as a Christian to be made fun of, to demeaned, to be the butt of someone's joke. The life as an exile can be challenging. They rejected and persecuted Jesus. They'll get us as well. You may be passed over for a promotion that you deserve. You may be silenced on your sports team for holding a dissenting view about something. You may not be invited into the friend group that you thought you wanted to be part of. But listen to the example of Moses told us in Hebrews 11. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. I love how honest the Bible is about sin. If it wasn't pleasurable, none of us would do it. But the pleasures of sin are fleeting. They don't last. They don't stay. They don't satisfy Rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. And so you too today look to the hope of your reward. The last expectation that you can have is that you will be kept. In the words of the, the song we'll sing in just a few seconds, he will hold me fast. Your inheritance is kept in heaven for you. It will not spoil or perish or fade. Four years ago, I remember standing on the precipice of 2020 with all kinds of optimism and hope. I mean, I think everybody heard a 2020 vision of some sort in a church or company or school or something like that. And we had no idea that a global pandemic would shut down everything and accelerate crazy cultural change that we're still trying to get our minds around. What does 2024 have for us? I don't know. It's an election year. That'll be interesting. It'll be a year that'll contain great joy and great heartache. I can't tell you the kind of year that it will be for you, but I can tell you this if you are in Christ. This year you are a chosen exile. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. 
Thank you for the hope that it stirs within us. Thank you for what Jesus has done for us. Would you open our eyes to the beauty and the wonder of that truth? God, would you help us to live in light of it so that we can endure being exiles in this world, knowing that we're chosen? God, would you humble us? Would you fill us with faith? Would you move and work in this year in ways that we don't even see yet? We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Before we 